0: All right. Tonight, part fifty-one, long gospel. Tonight, we come to a new thesis. Everybody know which one we're on. We're on thesis number nine. Probably would have been good if I would had all my books out, but okay. All right, thesis number nine. Um, Some of these theses, you will notice that they look uh, somewhat similar. Stacy pointed out that nine looks very similar to eight. Um, I hope that doesn't. What we'll try to do is try to. If if I feel like they're too much, they're 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 saying the same thing. Obviously, we'll. Look, I mean, they're going to try to draw some distinction between the previous one, obviously, in the book. But if uh, if I feel like they're staying too similar, we'll see if there's a way to deviate to deal with any issues that relate to the subject and still advance it where we. Not just not saying the same thing over and over and over. But in many cases, sometimes it's done this way because obviously there's that feeling or that idea that we need more repetition in order to remember it or to or to have it down. We will see. We will see. Um, Obviously, if it's too similar, I'll just start asking questions and see what you remember. And then if you don't remember, then I'll just well, then we'll just repeat it. Right. That's a good way of doing it. Right. Does that work? Okay. Nobody thought that was funny, but okay. All right. Here we go. Thesis number nine. I'm going to read it from the book and then I'm going to read it from uh, the PDF file that we made, all right? Here we go. Thesis number nine. The word of God is not rightly divided when sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not to the word, and of course, this is coming from a Lutheran background, and the sacraments, All right, and they say word and sacraments, and when they refer to sacraments, what sacraments does the Lutheran church hold to? How many? Two, all right, and what are the two sacraments? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And because I refer to them as sacraments, they mean that they are what? A visible means of grace. A visible means of grace. Something visible, but God's grace is given to us through that. So that what they're saying is if there's someone who is struck down and terrified by the law, um, the word of God is not rightly divided when sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not to the word and the sacraments. So in a Lutheran church, they're going to say, not only do you need the scriptures, but you need the sacraments because in the sacraments you will receive grace. Well, since you've already been baptized, you can't be directed to that one again. So what would they direct you to? The Lord's Supper and they would take it. How often? every single week. And in the Lord's Supper, you receive what? Well, the body and blood of Christ is underneath. The, it's, it's not transubstantiation, it's consubstantiation. It's a little different. But the bottom line is you receive the forgiveness of sins. You receive the forgiveness of sins. So that would be uh, an, issue, an, an issue there, right? So, I mean, obviously we disagree with this. So when it's rewritten, we, when we rewrote it, if you remember, we, let, we take that out, but I just want to make sure we cover everything in the book. All right, so here we go. So the word of God is not rightly divided when sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law are directed not into the word and the sacraments, but to their own prayers and wrestlings with God in order that they may win their way into a state of grace. In other words, when they are told to keep on praying and struggling until they feel that God has received them into grace. Right, now, before I read how we have rewritten this, this becomes, and I don't know how the book is, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stay away from how the book is going to approach this and just approach it in my own way, because I think this, is, this leads us to a very important discussion. Alright, when someone... And, and you can just ask you your uh, how you would handle this in in your Christian life. You may have changed the way you've handled it because of our study on law and gospel, but prior to this study. I think most of us would have approached the situation this way. Someone comes to you and like, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm having this problem. I'm so bothered by this sin. It's tearing me apart. It's horrible. I can't stop. I, I, I feel horrible. We, would, we almost always go to the same instructions. We just state them in a different way. And what, is, and what are those instructions? Uh, we always tell them to pray, Right? pray i don't know exactly how this is supposed to work because obviously the god we're praying to is the god who's not already taken away the temptation or kept the temptation from you but okay we we just say pray all right what else we tell them they need to do more bible study what else more scripture memory what else more scripture reading What else? Okay, has no one ever given anyone advice before? This is the same advice. I mean, this is the advice Christians give all the time. All right, so we tell them to study, memorize, read. What else? Okay, we've got pray, listen to more sermons, right? Go to church, some form of accountability. And if you go to most churches, you know what you need, right? There is no hope for you until you join a small group. Right, you got to join a small group cuz small groups are the answer to all your problems. I mean, that's that's the answer to everything. Join a small group and all of your problems disappear, okay? Small group. What else? I think someone else said it. You need accountability. You got to have an accountability partner, right? So they'll check up on you and make sure you're you're doing better. You may need some kind of app or something to monitor what you're doing, okay? What else? Someone said counseling. You may be in counseling. In other words, there's going to be a list of things, but it's the standard stuff, right? It's like Christians haven't come up with any new advice. It's do this, 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 do this. This is claiming we don't we should not tell them to do anything. What should we tell them? Well, they they're gonna we'll we'll leave the sacraments out, but yes. Well, well, if we leave the sacraments out, what are they? What are they saying we should tell them? Right, we give them the gospel. We give them the God, and I know that's counterintuitive to probably everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever considered. And probably if you told other Christians that, they would say you're an antinomian, and that you're you know you're going to go to hell, and I don't know, you're, you you have to be thrown off a bridge at midnight. I don't know. Something needs to happen to you. You must, because, but, but I'm telling you, it's a radically different approach. Hey, I'm struggling with this sin. You need to remember that Christ crucified for you. He died for you. You are covered by his imputed righteousness. Rest in that, trust in that. I I know everything in us would be like, no, 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 no. I got to make them stop doing it. I got to tell them to stop doing it. They got to find a way to stop doing it. They must stop doing it. Or some, if they go straight lordship way, what would lordship possibly say? You're not saved, exactly. If your life is characterized by this, you're not saved. Because for some, what's their goal? Like <laughs> to tell everyone they're not saved, I guess, all right? But you're right, that would be some approach. Now, and let's be honest, how many would feel comfortable by pointing them to the gospel? Okay, Bobby said he would. Right? Hey, our, our, our first thought to everything is work harder, try harder, do more. Work harder, try harder, do more. Work harder, try harder, do more. And some may even say, hey, you, look, there's no reason for you to be struggling because you can stop doing it tomorrow. Right? But, which, now sometimes people will back off and not be so dogmatic about that. But, so this one is very important to realize that we're dealing with something very practical. When someone is struggling with sin, what do they need? Now, the, the previous one kind of dealt with this, but we're going to really drive this point home. What is the counsel we give? Because I think our focus is always to make the person feel like, you've got to do more, you shouldn't be doing this, there's no reason you should be doing this, and we heap guilt upon guilt and shame upon shame so that they will stop doing it. Are we, what do we, the, the church... What do we, if, let's be honest, the church's highest priority in most of these situations is what? What do you think the church's highest priority is? In these situations? Yeah, what do you think the church's highest priority is? Behavioral modification. We want change of behavior. We want change of behavior. We want change of behavior. We want change. That's what we want. And, and we think we want repentance, but we want repentance because we say that it's going to change behavior. We want behavior change. We want behavior. The behavior must stop. And what's weird is we'll focus on how, many, how much of the behavior. We always know how it focuses on the one thing, okay? Because somehow if you fix the one thing, I guess that's good, even though you're committing 500 other things, but we will ignore the other 500 things as long as we fix the one thing because we base which thing we need to focus on on the level of scandal or shame that it may cause, right? This one is an 8 on scandal. This one is a 2. Fix the 8 and you can live in the 2 all day long. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody can. And you say, no, that's not true. We can't. No, you don't. Because you never see anyone in trouble for 50. Think of some of the, the, the seven deadliest sins. Everybody find that in Proverbs. What's called the seven deadly sins? These seven things God hates. Or six. How does it say it? Hates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, f- yeah find those. Then Proverbs. See who can find it first. Whoever finds it first. It's nothing, but <laughs> indeed, you can say you found it first. You Please use Google if you need to. I don't, I don't care what you use. Let's just see who can come up with it first. Okay. <laughs> now, now the way we find, and, and back when we went to church a long time ago, we would do Bible drills on Sunday nights to see how quick. Proverbs 6, I was waiting for someone to say finally Proverbs 6. All right. You did Google, man. Okay. Remember when we used to do Bible drills in church to see how fast people could find stuff? Okay. 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 Well. Okay. All right. Here we go. Proverbs chapter six. It starts where? Verse 16. These six things that the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. Everyone seen anyone excommunicated for a proud look? Ever never seen anyone church discipline for a proud look. Even if they demonstrate total arrogance, total pride, total, you know, disrespect, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Next. A lying tongue. Anybody ever? Now, if they're lying about a specific scandalous sin, they may get in trouble. But it won't even be on the lying. What will it be on? It'll be on the scandalous sin, not the fact that they lied about it. Okay. So a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Now, I would hope if someone kills someone, that would probably that would probably get you know there, all right. But we do know that we can kill someone in the heart. But okay, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, <laughs> feet that, that are swift in running into mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Yeah, have you ever seen one cause all kinds of trouble and and discord and trouble in church. I mean, sometimes they may get in trouble, but for the most part, what I'm saying is just right there, we have things that God hates and we know how not much happens. Certain things happens, but if someone came with struggling with these things, we would then give them a list of things that they should do so that they can stop. It's just our whole, our whole approach to the whole thing is so, I think, almost anti-biblical, right? We treat certain sins worse than other sins, the other sense, you can live in and nobody cares. You commit the wrong one, everyone cares, right? You can be publicly shamed, humiliated for this, but this, nothing even happens to you, even though the things that people do live in all the time are the things God says he hates, okay? It's always amazing, right? So we our whole approach to this is messed up. So maybe in this particular thesis, we can uh, come up with some a better way of looking at all of this. Now, this is the way we rewrote it. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law, I'm sorry, this is number nine, I'm going back to eight, all right? The word of God is not rightly divided when a sinner is overcome with guilt and is not directed to grace, but is directed to actions, rules, steps. If the person is overcome with sin, we need to start with the gospel, all right? Again, very similar to eight, but we're really going to get into the practicality of it. They're really... What do we do in these situations? Now, not only is that how we should handle other people, it's also what we need. Now, the problem is, if you're overcome with sin and you give yourself the gospel, you're going to have 50 people show up on you really quick going, what are you doing? You don't care about your sin? You're probably not even saved. And because they don't want you to have the gospel, they want you to have guilt and they want you to change their behavior to their liking. So that's where sometimes, you know, the I I hate to say this, you know, the probably the best place to go when you're overcome with sin is to a non-Christian rather than a Christian. Because in many cases, the Christians are going to be the one who are going to probably make things worse than better. Not in every situation, but in some cases, that's what's going to happen. All right. Here we go. This is number nine. Now we're going to start seeing how the book handles this. Everybody ready? All right, I can hear massive excitement. All right, here we go. In order to obtain a divine assurance regarding the proper ways of rightly dividing the word so as to meet the errors named in our thesis, let us examine a few examples recorded in Scripture. Let us observe the apostles who divided the word of God rightly and showed alarmed sinners the right way to rest and peace. An assurance of their state of grace with God. Now here, this is interesting. Now I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to, remember, I'm going to do a lot of borrowing from this and going in our own direction, all right? So if someone, I'm going to repeat this a lot. Here's someone who, they're struggling with sin, they're in sin, they're committing sin, they're upset about it, they're, they're like, what, you know, I need help. And our minds, our first thought is the help they need is to what? Stop doing the sin. Right? That's, that's our first thought. This seems to point that this is what they need. Rest, peace, assurance of their state of grace with God. That's a radical different approach. Now what you need is rest, peace, and assurance in the grace of God. Now I guarantee you 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 can just have this conversation with any Christians that you know, and I guarantee you you're gonna end up in a disagreement and there's gonna be they're gonna be upset and they're gonna accuse you of all kinds of things. Right? Rest, peace, and assurance with God. Does it mean mean to repeat that? rest peace and assurance of their state of grace with God. So in other words either you're going to you believe they need behavioral modification, they need in a sense they need rebuke or you know no 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 look I look, I know that you're committing the sin. Yes, I agree with you the sin is wrong. No one's excusing that the sin is wrong. Do I think you need to stop that sin? Everyone believes you need to stop that sin. But here's here and I think this is the And I keep trying to say this, and I don't know if people are really catching on to what I'm saying. Because I know it feels like, well, you're trying to ignore sin. But I'm trying to see sin in a more realistic image, right? A a realistic idea. And I think this book, I'm not saying that they would completely agree with me, but at least the concept is there. So let me make sure, I want to stress this again. If someone comes to me and they're broken over a specific sin... No matter how much I fix them with that sin, they're still committing gobs of other sins. So what we get preoccupied is with, you've got to stop that sin. Well, well, wait a minute. What about, they still don't love God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. They still don't love the neighbor as their self. They still are not as holy as God is holy. So I've already got three that they're committing basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So what good, I mean, and I and I know I'm gonna say this and people are gonna you know lose their minds, but in some one sense, what good is it to fix that one sin when there's still the others that are never gonna go away? So what we so what we've created within the the evangelical world is a level that is acceptable. Don't commit the big ones. And you can commit these, and you're good. And some people say, no, we don't say they're good. Give me a break. Yes, we do. There's never church discipline. There's never scandal. There's never anything. Everybody's perfectly okay. Here, just stay away from that. That's a line too far. So they step over the line too far, and then we come like, boom, you better change your behavior. Boom, you better stop doing it. Well, okay. But all we're doing is focusing on that behavior. What they need... The other approach is, look, they're going to be in sin no matter what. So guess what they need? They need to be, assu- what, what, rest, peace, and assurance of their state of grace with God. What they need to be reminded. Did you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you trust in his perfect righteousness? Yes. Are you trusting in his finished work for your sin? Yes. Then you need to rest and you have peace and assurance and that righteousness now i know that sounds like i know that sounds insane i know that sounds insane now you may say are you saying you don't care about the behavioral change i'm not saying i don't care about the behavioral change i'm just saying that i have to know that no matter what behavioral change manifests itself guess what they still are a sinner so guess where their if their hope become, becomes in how many sins they can overcome, if they really care that much, they will find themselves completely in despair, completely de- depressed, completely discouraged. And if they and if they're even halfway honest with themselves, they will have to conclude that Christianity doesn't work, or they have to go the other way and convince themselves, I I I do it, I do it, I do it, I pass the MacArthur test. No, you don't. Now, I passed the MacArthur test. Remember what we talked about on Sunday? Me and Bobby, we've got it figured out. We passed the MacArthur test. How do we pass the MacArthur test? Because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. We pass it perfectly. So the people who want to argue about it, like, no, you have to have a change in life. Like, no, I've got the perfect change in life. It's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Instead of you yelling at me, how about you go check yourself? Because most likely, if you're honest with yourself, you fell the test. Because what, what, what should be the, uh, ex- uh, the only acceptable score for the test? Perfect, personal, exact, entire, perpetual. Okay, you got the idea. All right. So I, I just think, I, I want you to just see that distinction. Someone in sin, do I want them, their behavior change? And do I want to give them steps to do? Or do I want them to understand and have rest? Peace and assurance in their state of grace with God. All right. Acts chapter 2 is the first place they want to. You can just have it open. They're not going to give us a specific verse, but just in case we need to try to find something. All right. All right. Now, I believe they're going to make a reference to Acts. I believe it's 2.38. Acts 2.38, very famous verse. Lutherans love this verse. It says, repent, be baptized, right? Okay, now this is what they said. So, Acts chapter 2, when these words of the apostles struck, because in Acts chapter 2, what has happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 2? In Acts 2? Acts 1 is the Ascension, Acts 2 is Pentecost. Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2, right? Yes? And I I, I think, do you believe that those, I think those words would be convicting to some some people, right? He makes some pretty strong words there in the sermon. There we go, Acts 2.37. They're struck, they're convicted, right? And what is the exact words they say? What shall we do? What shall we do? So here's someone convicted over their sin. What shall you do? He said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the word repent, listen how they describe it. We talked about this on Sunday. Repent means change your minds. It refers quite plainly to what is called the second part of repentance, repentance. Uh, the term is here used in the figure, uh, and they, and they kind of tr- go into some things. Uh, the law had already done its work upon the hearers. Accordingly, it was far from the apostle Peter's mind to bring about their f- salvation by hurling them into still greater distress, anguish, and terror. Now that their hearts had been pricked, he was satisfied. They were now prepared to hear the gospel and receive it into their hearts. Therefore, the apostle now addressed them, you must, uh, you must change your minds, and believe the gospel of the crucified one, you must dismiss all your errors and be baptized at once in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the, in other words, now I understand that, he's refer- that this is speaking of lost people, obviously, but the same principle applies to a believer. What they need to do, now yeah, they do need to make sure, in most cases, a believer, if they're coming to you saying, hey, this is a sin, they don't need to repent and change their mind. Right? Because they're already admitting it's a sin. Now, if they come to you going, hey, this has been going on in my life, well, now you, they may need to repent because they need to change their mind. We would typically go, you need to repent because you need to change your action, but the word repentance, we, I think we've clearly demonstrated it's a reference to changing your mind, right? All right, so he says, other demands. The apostles did not make his hearers were only to listen to his words, take comfort in these soothing words of consolation. This promise of the forgiveness of their sins, of life and salvation. We are not told about measures such as the sex and our day employ. In other words, uh, they don't they didn't do he doesn't do things that most churches would do today here. Uh, He just says, repent and believe. Acts chapter 16 Acts chapter 16. Everybody there? And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's fetters were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. See verses 26 and 27? Does that look familiar to you? Familiar with the story? All right. If prisoners escape from jail, the keeper of the prison was held responsible. In the case of especially dangerous characters, the jailer was apt to be punished with death if they escaped. He calculated, since I'm to be sentenced to death anyway, what is life worth to me? I prefer to be my own executioner. Paul cried with a loud voice. Look at verse 28. What does he say? Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Imagine the impression that cry made on the jailer. From the Psalms the apostle had sung, uh, the jailer had very likely understood that that they were men who wished to tell the people how to find a happy fate beyond Hades. In his great distress, he now beseeches the apostles, Men, verse 30, What must I do to be saved? If the apostles had been fanatics, they would have said to him, my dear friend, this is no easy matter. Before a godless, reckless man like you can be saved and elaborate extensive cures necessary which you will prescribe to you. (laughs) In other words, a lot of people would say, okay, well, are you sure? Like in the lordship thing, you almost have to say, now, are you sure you want to be saved? Are you sure you're going to commit yourself to Jesus Christ? Are you sure you're willing to turn from all your sins? Are you sure you're committing yourself to him as Lord? Like we would have to really emphasize that. Correct? But what what does he say? Now what verse is that where he says it? 31. 31. Everybody read it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shall be saved and thy house. All right? He says... Uh, Not a word of this uh, they behold in the jailer a person fit to receive the gospel. He was godless as before. He had not yet conceived a hatred for sin. Please note that. You hear how they worded that? He's not conceived a hatred for sin yet. Right? He hadn't go, okay, I hate sin and I'm only going to love you. Nothing had changed in him, had it? Right? Had anything changed in him? No, he was still the same sinner he was, Right? He says nothing about that. All he wants is to escape the punishment of sin and obtain happy, blessed fate beyond the grave. That same night the jailer is converted, obtains faith and has the assurance that is accepted with God and reconciled. He has become a beloved child of God. And how did he become a a beloved child of God? Not because of what he would do or if he committed enough to the lordship of Jesus or that he was going to turn from his sins. No, because he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was imputed to him at that moment? Christ's righteousness. So at that moment, he became what? Perfectly righteous. All right, everybody everybody got that? All right. What measures did the apostles apply to him? Nothing beyond proclaiming the gospel to him without any condition attached to it. They tell him, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus. That makes the apostles' practice plain. It in every instance where their word had produced faith... They administered baptism immediately. They did not say, we have to take you through an extensive course of instruction and expound to you accurately and thoroughly all the articles of the Christian creed. After that, we, we shall have put you on probation to see whether you can become an approved Christian. Nothing of the sort. The jailer asked to be baptized because he knows that it means for receiving him the kingdom of Christ and they promptly administer baptism to him. Right, so they're giving these examples. And it is true that in the New Testament, baptism is what? Almost instantaneously, immediately. Well, and, and, and if we go with the more, say, lordship way, I know that many of them would still baptize almost immediately, but I don't know why because you've got to make sure that they've truly committed themselves to the lordship of Jesus and that they're going to do this and 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 pass the test. This goes against that concept completely. All right. Uh, Acts chapter 22. All right. Acts 22. they don't give me a a specific script, uh, verse reference here. All right. Who is, uh, who is spoken of in Acts 22? Let's just take a look through. Paul, anybody else? Ananias, all right, that's who they want us to focus on. Ananias does not say to Paul, first you must pray until you have a sensation of inward grace. No, he tells him, having come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus, your first step must be to receive baptism for the washing away of your sins. And then call upon the Lord Jesus. Um, that is the true order of saving grace. Not praying first for the grace of God, but after one has learned to know the grace of God, prior to that, he cannot pray accept, acceptably. All right? Now, so that's kind of the order that he's giving. Uh, in other words, um, he, uh, he does not say you have to pray for an inward grace. Uh, No, he tells him, having come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, your first step must to receive baptism. So the step is, and it's kind of interesting that even in a Lutheran book, they're acknowledging the step, right? The step is what? Having coming to the knowledge of Jesus, then you're baptized. Isn't that kind of interesting that that's the order this book is giving? (laughs) Because they're Lutherans, they baptize babies. Not anybody sees this as ironic, right? Where, did, where, where in the text does this order take place? Verse sixteen. Okay, what happens in Acts twenty two sixteen? All right, and he tells them there's no reason to. Yeah basically he's telling him there's no need to wait any longer, right? right. Just get baptized, uh, go ahead and get baptized now. Why? why because are you, yeah, why, are why are you waiting? And the reason why are you waiting? Cuz Paul has already what? Come into the knowledge. He's already believed, right? Having come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, your first step must to receive baptism for the washing away of your sins. And then call upon the Lord Jesus. This is the true order of saving grace. Not praying first for the grace of God, but after you've once learned to know the grace of God, prior to that, you cannot pray acceptably. So, I, 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 now I understand. They throw in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We would say baptism for the forgiveness of sins means what? How do we understand that? Yeah, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we understand that to mean baptism because of the forgiveness of sins, right? It's like, what did you get a speeding ticket for? Doing to 110. So you mean you got a ticket so you could? Do, no, you got it because of something, right? Because of something. Why am I being baptized? Because of something. I know Lutherans would disagree. Anyone who holds to the sacraments, but we, that's the way we would understand it, all right? Does that make sense? Okay, because once again, if, if I'm being baptized in order to be saved, well, then you would just put water on me. Then I guess that would produce the faith, right? But they're almost, they're, on one hand, they're almost arguing, no, you have to believe, then you're baptized. Then you get the forgiveness of sins. Well, then I'm doing something in order to get the forgiveness of sins. But then they say baptism is not something we do. It's what God does for us. It becomes this whole, Circular back and forth, back and forth, back and forth kind of concept. All right. But we get the idea that they're kind of putting forth an order here. In this instance, the practice of the Lord Himself exhibited to us. He surely knows how to deal with poor sinners. As soon as Saul becomes alarmed about his sins, uh, okay, they, I'm making sure, okay, this is the way that's written. I'm just going to go with the way it's written here, right? Because that's like, wait a minute, this is. We're talking about Ananias and Paul. And then all of a sudden now it says, in this instance, I'm just going to read it the way it's written. OK, <laughs> all right. In this instance, the practice of the Lord himself is exhibited to us. He surely knows how to deal with poor sinners. As soon as Saul become alarmed about his sins, Jesus approached him with his consolation. He did not require him to experience all sorts of feelings, but promptly proclaimed to him the word of God. This shows a true minister of Christ how to proceed when his object is to lead sinners who have been crushed by the law to the assurance of grace of God in Christ Jesus. The method, and they refer to them as the sex, right, is very contrary of this. True, they also preach the law first with great sternness, which is quite proper, the only wrong feature in this part of their preaching is their, de- their depiction of the infernal torments, which is usually done in such a drastic manner as to engage the imagination rather than to make the words sink into the depth of the heart. They frequently preach excellent sermons on the law with its awful threatenings, only they do not bring out its spiritual meaning. Instead of reducing the hearers to the condition where they profess themselves poor lost, and condemned sinners who have deserved everlasting wrath, they put them in a state of mind, which makes them say, is it not terrible to hear God uttering such awful threatenings on account of sin? If you do not lead a man by law to the point where he puts off completely the garment of his own righteousness and declares himself a miserable, wicked man, whose heart is sinning day and night with his evil lust, thoughts, desires, and wishes, uh, uh, and wishes of all kinds, you have not preached the law aright. So what he's saying that there are people out there who do preach the law, but they really preach the law in a way to scare people and to just make people start thinking about how horrible it is and I'm going to burn in hell and it doesn't really get them to, I'm going to put off my righteousness because I need Christ's righteousness. In other words, you're not there just to scare, you're not just there to spark the imagination, you're there to use the law to show them that their righteousness is insufficient, and they need a perfect righteousness. Right? It's kind of weird the way they, they they decided to go there, but okay. Remember, this is, uh, the original book is like 500 something pages long, so this is edited down big time. So, Sometimes there's these gaps and you're kind of like, wait, that's a weird transition. But all right. So we get the idea. All right. Um, they go on a, uh, you see, but the incorrect preaching of the law is not the worst feature of these groups. They do not preach the gospel to such as are alarmed and in anguish. They imagine they would commit the worst sin by immediately offering consolation to such poor souls. Now, this is where they go. This is where, okay, wait a minute. Now the person's all upset. The person's broken. They're, they're horrible. And so sometimes there's these groups out there who feel like, well, I gotta make sure. I gotta make sure that they're believing their belief is real. I gotta make sure that they really, truly know. So then you have to try to offer, are you truly willing to turn from your sins? Are you truly willing to commit yourself? Because I remember learning lordship. And this is kind of the way you, it changed your evangelism, right? Because in lordship, you felt this other way was an easy believism. So now you couldn't just like, I can give them the gospel. I got to be like, Bobby, are you sure? Are you sure you're willing to commit? Are you willing to turn from your sins? Like, I got to really make sure you're willing to do a bunch of stuff. Now, I won't tell you you have to do it first, which is so weird. Because if 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 you preach repentance as a change of behavior then you would have to demand that Bobby demonstrates repentance first. But the way they get around it is, no, you don't have to change yet, Bobby. You just have to be willing to change. But if you don't change a lot in the next couple of months, then what we're doing right now is a waste of time. So it's really weird how this kind of gets played out in the evangelical world because we're so afraid that someone's going to believe and still be a sinner. But the reality is, we're still going to be a sinner, okay? So so I, I agree that people get really, like, crazy about this. But all right, let me read this again. Uh, but the incorrect preaching of the law is not the worst feature of these groups. They do not preach the gospel to such as are alarmed and in anguish. They imagine that they would commit the worst sin by immediately offering consolation to poor souls. They give them a long list of efforts that they must make in order, if possible, to be received into grace. How long they must pray, how much they have to fight and wrestle and cry until they can say they feel they have received the Holy Ghost and divine grace and can rise from their knees shouting hallelujahs. Now again, this is going after kind of an evangelistic approach that was obviously prevalent around this time, right? But it's the idea that you've got to I gotta wrestle with God, and I gotta feel this, and then I'll get the Holy Spirit. Now I can, now I can stop sinning. Once again, though, the efforts is focused on what changing the behavior, not the comfort and the assurance and the peace, the peace and the rest that you find in Christ. Now I know they're focusing this on an evangelistic way, but it, it's just as applicable in the life of any person. If they're broken over their sin, they need consolation. They don't need rebuke to so that they'll change their behavior. And I know that's what we want more than anything, but it's the, it's the wrong way to go through it. But the required feelings may rest on a false foundation. Now they're going to go after the feelings concept. It may not be the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the heart, but a physical effect produced by the lively presentations of the preacher. That explains why sincere persons who have become believers not infrequently feel one moment they have found the Lord Jesus and in the next they have lost him again. Now they imagine that they are in a state of grace and another time they are fallen from grace. Now this is where you you use emotions to get people to do something. This is why I, I, I abhor church camps because you isolate the kids, you indoctrinate the kids, you manipulate the kids, you can, almost get, you can always get a kid to say a prayer, almost. You can manipulate them. They say a prayer. They come running home. <laughs> I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Until about what? Okay, well, two days. a couple of months, and then what happens? The feeling is gone. And then once the feeling is gone, what are they usually left with? Even if they don't verbalize it, subconsciously they feel kind of stupid. Feel kind of awkward. Okay. Well, even if they can't articulate that, there's this feeling. Well, what happened? What happened? What happened? Is your parents sent you to a messed up place, and they should be put in jail for sending you there? Because because I can't I can't stand that. That stuff happens, but it, it does. It's it's manipulative, and it's ma- uh, children's church, child evangelism. Many of those things happen inside the church where the kids get separated from the parents and then they're being manipulated. They're being straight up manipulated. And that's messed up. That's just not, that's not a good thing. All right, now, this is what they're going to point out. Everybody paying close attention? These faulty, this faulty practice is based on three awful errors. Now they're going to give us three awful errors that they'd say this practice is based off of where you're kind of manipulating the emotions, right? We're going to see what three they identify here and if we understand them. And and again, I'm going to to keep trying to apply some of this. I'm going to try to apply some of this beyond evangelism. They're keeping it in the evangelistic realm. I want to put it in the sanctification realm, right? Because the same practice can happen. Someone struggling with a sin, struggling with a sin. That if if Look, it doesn't take a lot as a preacher, because you know yourself. If you have a large congregation, right, you probably know what some sins the people are struggling with. One, if you talk to the people, but you can probably guess, right? So you may know that the women are not being submissive to their husbands and they feel guilty about it. Husbands are... Not loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, maybe teenagers are being rebellious. Uh, maybe there's uh, premarital sex happening amongst the teenagers. Maybe there's men looking at pornography. What you just name, you can, you can, you always know there's the go to sins you can get, right? And so what can happen sometimes is then the pastor can know, okay, I'm going to go all in on this sin, right? Or if it's revival time, Bring in the revivalist. They'll come in hard on that sin. And guess what? You can spark, if you preach it the right way and use the right words, what can you get? An emotional reaction. You get the emotional reaction. Do people people truly feel guilty? I believe they truly feel guilty, right? But they feel guilty and then they come to the altar and what do they come to the altar imploring God for? Change the behavior. I, I think they may want forgiveness, but... If they're, if, I mean, if they're, if they're truly saved, they've already been forgiven. But okay, so I think they come imploring, even though they may use the word forgiveness, they're imploring God for what? Change, change. But it's based off emotion, it's based off a of feeling. Right? A little bit of guilt. Now, that's great. Typically, what happens? Is there, is there a usually immediate change? Yeah. How long? If it's change driven by emotion, the change only lasts as long as the emotions last. The emotion goes away. Change doesn't go away. What do the people really need? According to this concept, this theory, they need comfort, rest, assurance, and the grace of God. And I know that that's like, no, 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 no. no. I need everyone in the church to change. I, I, think they, I think we have to look at it from a different approach. And I know that makes, like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You had 15 people come to the altar and you didn't t- give them 15 different ways in which they need to change. You just told them, are you trusting in Christ and him crucified? Are you resting and have assurance in his imputed righteousness? You're good to go. People will be like, how dare you say that? Well, I can tell them to stop that one sin, but still going to be committing 50 others. They they need to have this down. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't stop the sin. I'm not saying we are excusing it. I'm not saying we're saying it's not a sin. We are still acknowledging, you're right, that's a sin. There's about 50 others you're not confessing to me right now. Okay, (laughs) So we can focus on this one. I can manipulate you. But you're still going to sin in some way, shape, or form. So you've got to cling to this. Now, some may say, well, how does that produce the change? I don't know. I know thousands of years, of 2,000 years of church history. I know this. God's people are always sinning. (laughs) I'm not saying you say, well, keep doing it. But at the same time, I need to give them the, the true what they really need and I know this is a completely radical, different approach, but here's the three errors they that comes from this practice of basically using emotion, all right? Or, or this, this that may be going to the deeper error where we're, we're not rightly dividing the word because when sinners are struck down, uh, we are not directing them to uh, the gospel. Let's see which, I think they're going to apply this to all. All right, but three errors, you ready? Number one, in the first place, these different groups neither believe nor teach a real and complete reconciliation of man with God because they regard our heavenly father as being a God very hard to deal with whose heart heart must be softened by passionate cries and bitter tears. So in other words, this first problem is, the first error is they they misrepresent God. They misrepresent God. And they basically misrepresent God as being a God who's what? I'm not going to forgive you unless you can do what? Soften me with your passionate cries and bitter tears. That amounts to a denial of Jesus Christ, who has long ago turned the heart of God uh, to man by reconciling the world with him. God does nothing to, by halves. In Christ, He loves all sinners without exception. The sins of every sinner are canceled. Every debt has been liquidated. There is no longer anything that a poor sinner has to fear when he approaches His Heavenly Father with whom he has been reconciled by Christ. I know that's kind of worded in a round way that sounds almost like universalism, but, um, we get the idea. What, this is the point. If you come to me broken for your sin, I don't want to represent like, hey, God is really upset with you. God is really, maybe if you pray hard enough and if you do enough of this, God's going to fix this. No, Christ, this is almost a denial of the work of Christ. In Christ Jesus, I'm what? I'm forgiven. I'm righteous. I'm holy. So So I don't need to have them think that they have to do something to earn God's forgiveness. God has forgiven them in Christ Jesus. They're they're, they're already forgiven. Their sins have already been removed. This is why the lordship thing is so weird to me, right? Because let's say I I give Bobby that test, right? Let's say the the other, last Sunday, I think we had the nine point test for MacArthur. I think there's 11 point, uh, nine point. But I give Bobby the the test. And what if we all watch the test be administered and everyone's like, man, Bobby failed that thing. He blew it doesn't love God, doesn't love his word, just he failed, he failed, he failed, he failed. Well, they, they claim that proves Bobby is what? Not saved. But please hear how that works. Does that even make sense to you? Because what is Bobby supposedly saved by? The imputed righteousness of Christ. If he's saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ, Bobby failing the test, doesn't. how does that impact that? It doesn't have any bearing, does it? Unless you're saying, Bobby, your actions is the thing that keeps God forgiving you. But if he's forgiven in Christ Jesus, can Bobby's actions take away the forgiveness that God gave him in Christ Jesus? No. And how could your actions prove whether you were forgiven? If, if at lunch today, if Stacy threw the food at me and said, you're trash and broke a plate over my head and kicked me three times while I was down. Right? If I have forgiven, right? If there's forgiveness, no, no other action, it wouldn't matter, right? If there's been forgiveness, future action would not be dependent on my forgiveness. Like, hey, I'm going to forgive you, but you've got to do this and, this and 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 this. And if you don't do this, well, then this forgiveness that I'm giving you today has been canceled. That's what lordship does. Bobby, you're forgiven in Christ. But if you don't do this and this and this, then you're not really forgiven in Christ. So that makes my forgiveness dependent upon what? My action making my salvation a salvation of of works. They're saying that this destroys the whole concept, that this turns God. God's like, okay, I will forgive you, but I need to see some tears. I need to see some brokenness. I need to see something. And he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That, de- that destroys the whole work of Christ. Because I am reconciled to God by what? Christ. God's attitude towards me is based off what? What is God's attitude? What's God the Father's attitude ba- uh, uh, towards me based on? Christ, not on me I don't have to convince God I just I'm in Christ so what does that mean about all of my sins they're forgiven and what does that mean about me I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ Do you see? I know it's subtle, but I want to see how how that works. That's a crazy, the lordship test is so insane. It literally destroys the gospel. Because the minute I give you a test, then then I'm not, Bobby would be like, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm already forget, because any, any failure of those tests would be classified as a what? A sin. But wait, when you believed in Jesus... What supposedly happened to all your sins? So if all your sins are forgiven, can I pull up a list of possible sins that Bobby is committing to prove that he was never saved? They're forgiven. Right? Hey, here's the test. Hey, Bobby, there must be a change in your life. No, I was forgiven before there was a change in my life and I'm forgiven, and any lack of change would be sin. But if all my sin is forgiven in Christ, the lack of change can't be used against me because all of those sins have already been forgiven in Christ Jesus. So either was my sins forgiven or not. So either you have to go with this theory. Which sins were forgiven? Past and any present sin, if you commit too many of them, then you lose not only current forgiveness... You lose the past forgiveness, therefore you were never saved. But that, but they would say, no, 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 no. You're just proving that you were never saved. But how can I prove that I'm saved based off my failure, my sin, since all of my sins have been forgiven? So then you have to do some weird thing. Do you see how it all falls apart? And it's so crazy when you try to talk to someone about this. They just all they can say is there must be a change. There must be a change. There must be a change. And you're like, you, you don't, you don't. Obviously, you don't believe in the gospel. I don't know what you believe in. It, it destroys everything. Now, they're again using it more towards the lost person, but this is just applicable beyond that. Right? Because what they do is they turn God into a God that it has to be softened, that something has to, we got to make God happy with us. All right? So let me read this again. In the first place, these groups neither believe nor teach a real and complete reconciliation of man with God because they regard our Heavenly Father as being a God very hard to deal with, whose heart must be softened by passionate cries and bitter tears. That amounts to a denial of Jesus Christ, who has long ago turned the hearts of God to men by reconciling uh, them with him. God does nothing by halves. And Christ, he loves all sinners without exception. The sins of every sinner are canceled. Every debt has been liquidated. There is no longer anything that a poor sinner has to fear when he approaches his heavenly father with whom he has been reconciled by Christ. It's It's all gone. However, people imagine that after Christ has done his share, man must still do his And man is not reconciled to God until both efforts meet. That's in a roundabout way what this, that's what happens in the lordship. Hey, you're reconciled, but wait, 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 wait. You got to prove you're reconciled based off what you do. So therefore, you've got to do your part. Christ did his part. And when the two meet, then you get salvation. Now, they would say that that's a denial of what they're teaching, but that's exactly what they're teaching. I mean, I, I, I would I mean, we would all, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if all you've know. I've told you all a million times. Look, I don't try to hide their teaching. That I, how many different copies of the Lordship of uh, the, uh, the gospel according to Jesus is in this church? They're all over the place because I've tried to tell everyone to read it, read it, read it. I've been, I tried to tell people to read that book a bazillion times way before we got to this series. So that when we got to this series, no one could say that I was misrepresenting anything in any way, shape, or form because you've all read it for yourself. If you didn't read it, that's not on me because I've, tri- I've, I've, I've never hit it, right? I've, I've told people, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. I'm not afraid of, of going back and forth with the view because I know the view. I used to teach the view. And there's a, it, it breaks down. I hope you realize how much it breaks down when we start looking at it. Um. The, the The groups picture reconciliation as consisting in this that the Savior made God willing to save men, provided men would be willing on their part to be reconciled, but this is the reverse of the gospel God is re- God is reconciled accordingly, the apostles calls on us to, uh, accordingly, the apostle Paul calls on us to be reconciled to God, that means since God has been reconciled to you by Jesus Christ. Grasp the hand which the Father in heaven holds out to you. Moreover, the apostles declare, One has died for all, therefore all have died. That means Christ died for the sins of men, and this is tantamount to all men dying and making a satisfaction for their sins. Therefore, nothing at all is required on the part of man to be reconciled to God. He already is reconciled. Righteousness lies ready. It must be, it must first be achieved, it must not first be achieved by man. If man were to attempt to do so, it would be an awful crime, a battle against grace and against the reconciliation and perfect redemption accomplished by the Son of God. Now, just so that you note, Lutherans have kind of somewhat of a different, I, I, I didn't want to get too much into the language, but their kind of approach is they believe in a universal atonement, basically he died for everyone, and then you have to kind of get it where we believe Christ. Gave perfect reconciliation and atonement for the elect. Okay, which is which to me is the only thing that makes sense. Because if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, the whole world's gonna be saved. And you say, well, no, because of unbelief. Is unbelief a sin? Then that means he, cried he died for unbelief, right? So that's why we believe it's only for the elect. Okay, but that 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 gets into a whole different concept. But please note how this works. I love the way they word this. If you are, if you kind of argue that, no, 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 I have to do something, I have to do something, I have to do something, that you're you're committing an awful crime. You're literally fighting against the reconciliation of God in Christ. You're literally saying, no, you didn't do it. I got to do it. Now, I know lordship would say, no, 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 no. We're not saying you have to do it. We're saying that if you don't do it, we well, don't have to do it to get it. But if you don't do it, then you never got it. But then that, once again, I'm using my, my, how much I sin or don't sin supposedly proves that I've been forgiven of all my sins. But you can't use my sins that have been forgiven against me. It, does, it doesn't make any sense that way, right? Either I've been forgiven or I haven't. And I can't say, well, Bobby is forgiven, but based off what Bobby does from this point forward, we'll determine if he was really forgiven. Because that's not real forgiveness. What what would that be called? Hey, Bobby, you're forgiven. It's a conditional forgiveness. What what would be another word would we would call that? What do we do in the court system when we let someone out, but based on your actions? Probation. probation. Hey, we're going we're to let you out, but now here's some of the rules you have to follow. Now, if you, if you mess up, you're going back to jail. Because you've got to prove to me you're a changed man. That's the evangelical world in many cases. Hey, because at first we preached it in such a nice way, right? Believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. But if you do this, this, and this, and this, and this, you prove you were never saved. Because your salvation is really based on what you will do or don't do. So you're not really been given forgiveness. So it's literally, it's an attack upon the reconciliation we have in Christ Jesus. So what's the first error here? We're going to have to stop with this one. We won't go to the second one. It misrepresents God. And it basically denies the reconciliation we have in Christ Jesus. But it's representing God as God's like, okay, okay, all right. I know I forgave you, but if you need more forgiveness, which is, makes no sense. Now, I do, I do believe we need forgiveness in the sense of maybe our fellowship with God. But as far as our salvation, I can't use your sin against you about your salvation because your salvation was what? Completely done by Christ. And what's the requirement? Faith. And we don't even do that, do we? If we say repentance and faith is the requirement, okay, who gives us repentance? God, that changes our mind. And And then who gives us the faith? God. And so we have repentance and faith given to us and we are saved by that. And I can't use your failure to pass some arbitrary test to say that you were not reconciled because the reconciliation happened between God and Christ and it's perfect. So this, if you really think about this, this really shows how horrible a system is being put forth in the evangelical world. It's, it's, it, I mean, look, it's, it's straight, it, basically, it's, again, it, I, I know every time I say this, people laugh. It's just straight up Roman Catholicism. There's just no way to get around it. It is so horrible Roman Catholic. You're given that grace. But now what depends on you having keeping that grace? Your actions. Now, the, the, the only thing, we change the wording, right? We don't say now it, it's dependent upon your actions to keep it. Now we say it's depending on your actions to prove you ever got it. Which... That, that, that means then. We, I, I, how does my actions prove that I was all my sins were forgiven because of what Christ did? Either Christ forgave my sins or He didn't. And if He forgave my sins, what can you never throw in my face? My sins, because they've all been forgiven. Now you can say that the sin is wrong. You can say the sin goes against God's word. You can say the sin will hurt me and others. That's true. And you should encourage someone not to sin. But I I can't quote, throw your salvation out because I don't like what you're doing. Unless I'm, because what do I have to throw out? I have to say, one second, Bobby. Hey, God, Jesus, come here. We have to have a talk. This reconciliation did not happen for Bobby. But I died for his sins and he believed. I don't care that he believed in it. There's not enough change over there. But it's a done deal. I paid for his sins. I died for him. He put faith in me. No, 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 no. Bobby didn't change enough. Therefore, Bobby's not saved. Well, I think probably God and Jesus would probably tell the person making such claim. Okay, it's probably probably going to say, um, when you become God and you want to reconcile people, then you can have your own rules, but you don't make the rules for us. I don't know what to say about it. This chapter is kind of interesting. Again, it's kind of weird the way they did that one thing, but all right. Other than that, this is an interesting, they're really going after the, the practical ramifications of this and that's what we need to see is the practical ramifications of it. I know. I know there's a lot there to process and us to try to wrap our minds around because it goes against all of our thinking, does it not? We want people to change and we want to see that lack of change as proof of no reconciliation, but God accomplished, Christ accomplished that reconciliation by dying for me. And all my sins are forgiven. That's why Paul can say in Romans, who can lay the charge to uh, to God's elect? No one can. Why? God justifies, not me. And when you look to me, you're telling, I justify myself. Now, I may justify myself as far as what you think, but God is the one who justifies me perfectly perfectly and spiritually. All right, so let's pray. Well, God, we come before you this evening. Very interesting chapter that's going to prove difficult and trying to work through, but I pray that we would really consider these principles and most importantly, leave here grateful that no matter what we do, we can find rest, peace, and assurance because of what Jesus did for us that is perfect, that is complete, and that is secure has nothing to do with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,